0: It goes back to the definition of value investing, right? I want to figure out what I think an asset is worth and then buy it for less than that amount. And that is your margin of safety, the difference between your estimate of intrinsic value and the amount that you're paying for a company. And ideally, you want that margin of safety to be as wide as possible. uh, And that it protects you on your downside in case your investment thesis doesn't pan out the way you expect. uh, And it gives you a little boost to your upside potential if things do go as you expect. I'm Dylan Lewis, and that's Motley Fool Senior Analyst Rich Griefner. He joined Ricky Mulvey to talk about the fundamentals of value investing. In this episode, they break down if we should even draw a line between growth and value investing, how to look for mispricings in the market, and a couple
1: stinky feedstocks that might be worth your attention. This is a simple question, but possibly difficult to answer, Rich. Um, what does it mean to be a value investor?
0: Yeah, uh, The term value investor means uh, different things to different people. Um, I think to many people, it conjures up the image of you know, this shabbily dressed guy scouring the street um, searching for discarded cigar butts in hopes of, of getting one last puff of value for free. Um, that's, that's not an image that's really um, resonated with me, that's not a style of investing. Uh, that has worked well for me historically. I much prefer Joel Greenblatt's definition of value investing. And that is, uh, I'm trying to figure out what an asset is worth and then buy that asset for much less than that amount. And I really like that definition because it means any asset can be a value investment. It's just really a matter of how much you pay and what you get in return.
1: I think the cigar butt type of investing that's that's kind of the that's the Benjamin Graham, right? So that might have worked more my guess is that probably worked better when there was just less information available and markets were maybe a little less efficient. No, no, for sure you're absolutely right. It used to be
0: like you know back in Graham's day, back in like the early Buffett days, like you would he would literally like go to the Library of Congress and check out a company's financial statements—you know—analyze them in the library and then return them to the desk. So you could you could be the only person in possession of that type of information. Uh, but you know, due to the um, proliferation of
1: technology, that is no longer the case. Makes sense. So, what kind of temperament do you? Because value investing maybe isn't for anyone. You got different different styles of investing for different folks. Uh, what temperament do you need to be a value investor? What's what's the type of person who makes a good value investor?
0: I think there's a couple qualities that you, you really ought to have if you're going to be a value investor. Um, first, I, th- I think you need to be an independent thinker. Uh, that's because the companies that you choose to invest in are probably going to be out of favor, uh, and often they're going to be you know, unpopular and like wildly unpopular, and you need to be okay with that. Uh, you need to be patient, that's probably true for just about any type of investor. But for these types of value investments, it can take a long time for your investment thesis to play out. Um, and last but not least, you need to be disciplined. Um, there could be long stretches where it, it's difficult to find an attractive value investment. And during those times, it's really important to maintain your high standards and not chase after mediocre
1: opportunities. Uh What's it mean to for a business to be wildly unpopular but attractive to a value investor? <laughs> uh, Dan Loeb has a concept
0: that I really like. Uh, it's called, I think he called it stinky feet uh, stinky feet stocks, uh, which is hard to say, but it's easy to understand. Which is when you mention the name of a company to someone, they give you kind of that stink face, like they just smelled some horrible stinky
1: <laughs> socks. Nice. And, uh, for a value investor, is this is this the kind of person who's more concerned about not losing money or more eager to outperform the market? I think most value investors would probably say they're more concerned about not losing
0: money. Um, but but truth be told, it's it's hard not to play that relative comparison game when you know the scoreboard is p- updated every second. Um, but it's interesting the way that you posed that question though, because uh, I don't think those two things are necessarily, Mutually exclusive. I think if you're primarily concerned with not losing money, that means you're probably going to focus on buying strong companies uh, you know, with sustainable competitive advantages, high returns on invested capital, good management teams, strong balance sheet, and uh, buy them at a reasonable valuation. Uh, and so if you do that consistently, not only will you not lose money, but I think you're also probably likely to outperform over time.
1: You didn't mention momentum. No, no, not a factor. <laughs> um, value investors are sometimes at odds with with growth investors, and I think there's two parts to this question. But the first mm-hmm. is, what do you think growth investors can learn from from the value side?
0: Um, you know, I don't really. I know you bring me on here as, as the value guy. I don't really think it's it's helpful to draw such a distinction between growth and value investors. I think investors uh, do themselves a great disservice. By labeling themselves and by thinking of themselves as i'm only a growth investor or I'm only a value investor you're just you 're shutting yourself off from a universe of potentially attractive investments and I think everyone's portfolio should have a mix of companies that might be defined as traditional growth or traditional value
1: let's move on to some of the principles because there are um some fundamentals that I, I don't want to gloss over um, is is book value important to you? Is as, as a value investor, and what's what's it, that mean? It can be important. It used to be a lot more important, as
0: you noted uh, during the days of, of Ben Graham and his heyday. It was a lot more important. So so you know, taking a step back, so book value is an accounting concept, um, and it's simply the co- the value of a company's assets minus its liabilities. And you can think of this, you know, it, for listeners who might own their home, you can. Take the value of your house, subtract the outstanding principal uh, amount on your mortgage. So the value of your home, your assets, the principal amount in your mortgage, your liabilities. The net of that—that's your equity. That's your book value
1: in your house. It's the same concept uh, when you apply to companies. And then, what would be the intrinsic value of a company? How's that? How's that different than that simple net worth calculation? Sure, so book value is an accounting concept. Intrinsic value is really a theoretical concept,
0: and that's that's as the investor that is your estimate of what a company is worth. And it's important to note there's no such thing as a true intrinsic value. It's just your estimation of you know if I were to buy this entire business outright, what might be a fair price for that?
1: I still think that accounting concept of book value is important because occasionally uh, businesses will trade below their their book value. so what are some reasons that a, a business could trade below that that accounting um, that accounting calculation for the value of a business?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a strong signal if a business is trading below book value. That's basically the market telling you we don't think this company is going to generate high returns on equity uh, going forward. Or maybe they're saying, okay, fine. You know, maybe it will generate high returns on equity, but we don't trust this management team to you know take the capital and deploy it in a manner that creates value for shareholders. And um, you know, book value it can be, as I mentioned, it can be um, a useful metric, but it only for a certain type of company. So that'd be for like a, a financial firm or like a manufacturing company that has a lot of physical assets. Then book value could be a really important valuation indicator. But for uh, a, a lot of the companies that are driving like today's economy, like um, you know Alphabet or, or Meta or any any software business, like the real value is being created by their engineers. And their code and like their brands and those factors are just
1: not um, accounted for in the book value calculation. Do you so if you see a company trading at a discount to its accounted uh, its its accounting value, is that more of a red flag or is that more of a let me check this for a uh, potential mispricing opportunity? Depends on the industry. Um, it's a
0: non-factor for for a software company. It's a non-factor um, for a financial. Uh, it could be interesting, but it's also probably like uh, the market's referendum on the quality of that business. But yeah, um, it's it's certainly something
1: worth investigating. Um, and maybe not a full breakdown, but uh, how do you find a company's range of intrinsic values? Sure. Um, there's yeah. There's many ways, and a full breakdown could be its own
0: podcast. Um, but the way that I tend to do it to calculate a company's intrinsic value is you run a discounted cash flow analysis, a DCF model, and that's basically uh, what you're doing is you're projecting the company's financials. You're um, estimating the amount of free cash flow it will generate each year from here into perpetuity. And then you're discounting those future free cash flows back at some required rate of return, and um, that that sounds like quite a mouthful. But you're basically figuring out how much cash is this company going to generate over its lifetime, and how much is that worth to me as an investor today?
1: Um, and then when you're looking for companies, do you do you have any valuation guardrails? Like, I for example, I don't buy companies above a, a 10x price to sales ratio, that kind of thing.
0: Uh, no, no. Um, those those types of relative multiples are useful, but they're really just a snapshot in time. So, like I said, like what I really care about is the company's ability to generate free cash flow in the future. So, looking at a multiple over any you know arbitrary one year period, it doesn't really inform you about that company's future prospects. So, it, it, those multiples can be useful, but I think you need to go beyond them. They're not the end all. And be all, and it could be um, a company with an enterprise value to sales ratio of ten is cheap, and a company with an enterprise value to sales ratio of one is actually expensive.
1: Um, I, I want to expand on that. So, what would be a case, like m- maybe a hypothetical case where that? Mm-hmm. So, enterprise value, just real quick, is um this this is fun, but unlike book value, enterprise value includes debt into the um into the the value of the company. So what could be an example where an enterprise value to sales ratio of 10 would be cheap well it's all about the future right it's all about the free
0: cash flow that the company is going to generate in the future so if i'm buying you know young microsoft in in year 1 or year 2 it doesn't matter it it really doesn't matter what kind of multiple you're paying to the sales you know back in the 70s because we know the sales for the next 3 4 or 5 decades are just going to grow exponentially, the free cash flow the company generates is going to be monstrous. So you could pay, I don't know, a thousand times, ten thousand times sales. It, that's that's not relevant for the amount of free cash flow
1: we we know this company is going to generate in the future. Markets are supposed to be efficient and we talked about earlier how it's it's a little bit more difficult to find those mispricing opportunities. And that's something that value investors still look for. Um, what are some ways you've seen Let's say the efficient market hypothesis break down. Mm.
0: I mean, I've never really seen the efficient market hypothesis work. Um, So I was I was learning about this concept in 1999. um, I was in college taking my econ classes, and I was in class, and the professor would say, "You know, these guys won the Nobel Prize uh, for this efficient markets hypothesis." And I thought, okay, you know, that's that's probably it's probably correct then. And then at the same time, you'd see these companies change their name to, um, you know, such and such Internet. Company and the stock would triple in a week. I was like, "Well, these these two things can't both be true. Like the efficient market hypothesis can't be true and 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 coexist with this type of stock market behavior." So I just I kind of concluded at
1: that time the efficient market hypothesis wasn't all it was cracked up to be. So what are what are some signs then that actually I'm I'm going to go back on that because I think that's that's the dot com era. I wonder if you're we're seeing it today. I mean, I think I am where. You also see markets maybe overprice or over, uh, yeah, overprice bad news, where you're seeing these in some cases strong businesses where their price stocks decline by like thirty to forty percent in a day if they miss expectations or there's a little bit of bad news, especially for the the more thinly traded businesses.
0: Yeah, and that that could be
1: efficient. Theoretically, that could be efficient if the if the piece of news
0: comes out and that does adversely impact the company's ability to generate future free cash flow or it makes it less certain, so you would increase your discount rate, uh, making those future free cash flows worth less. In theory, a 30% price swing could be justified, but in reality, no, intrinsic value is not really changing that much day-to-day, and and stock prices uh, are are much more volatile than uh, fundamental business changes.
1: Fair enough. Um, So Then, what are some signs, because we can't go to the Library of Congress looking at Mm -hmm. income statements that no one else can, Uh, what are some signs? That uh, a business is mispriced. Uh, yeah, so we talked about multiples before. Here, here's where they I think they're
0: really useful. Where if something sticks out, you know, if every other company in the industry is trading at a multiple of five, and this company's trading at a multiple of ten or two, that's interesting. Like there's there's something going on there, and maybe it's warranted, maybe it's not, but it's a sign to dig in. Um, another sign that a business might be mispriced is what we talked about Dan Loeb's uh, stinky feet. Stocks before, if everyone's reaction to a company is universally negative or uh, flip side, universally positive, it's like, well, that's, that's probably not right. Like, there's, you know, the, the, the real answer is probably somewhere in between the two extremes.
1: We may get to one of those businesses in a moment. Um, and then I, I often associate dividends, like looking for companies paying large dividends with value investing. Are, are dividends important to you or important to value investors? I think they're important to value investors. They're not
0: very important to me. This, this is um, someplace where I may differ. I don't want dividends. Like, you know, if the company wants to give me money, I will take it. But dividends are really my least favorite form of capital allocation. And that's because when I'm investing in a company, I'm investing, you know, with the assumption that the company has lots of high return opportunities into which it can invest capital and then reinvest capital for years and years and years, and that's paving the path for much higher free cash flow generation in the future. And when a company pays a dividend, it's basically saying, like, no, I, I, I don't have any better use for this money here, you take it back. So, that's, that's not really of interest to me. Um, if high-return investments aren't available, I'd much rather have the company keep that cash and just stay patient with it. And you know, Markets can turn, opportunities pop up, maybe you could reinvest in the business, maybe you could acquire a competitor that's in trouble. Maybe the stock price drops, and you can uh, buy back shares at a really attractive price. Or, like if you have to pay a uh, if you have to pay a dividend, pay it to me as a special one time dividend. I, I don't like this um, like this imposed quarterly cadence where these companies just kind of put handcuffs on their capital allocation. They 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 obli- they feel obligated to make this payment every single quarter, year after year after year.
1: I think the argument against that though is that obligation to make those payments. Uh, makes management teams better at capital allocation because it, it restricts their resources, and they they can't just go after any opportunity that they want to.
0: Yeah, uh, people will say that, but I'd rather invest in a management team that doesn't need those constraints imposed upon it, right? Like they're just good at allocating capital. They don't need those um, those boundaries, those false boundaries.
1: And then, I guess with buying back shares, though, historically many management teams are, are not so good at that because they often buy back shares at a relatively high price and then don't have the ability to buy back shares when when they actually should. Yeah, for sure. Uh, share
0: repurchases can be a really powerful tool, but most companies, I agree with you, most companies don't really use them well when they're flush with cash and everything's going great, Then they'll step up the repurchases, and then you know when inevitably the market turns, business conditions turn, and the stock is cheap. Then they they husband their cash away. It's like you should be doing the exact opposite.
1: So uh, what? Maybe this. I think this question goes beyond metrics, but like, what are some signs to you that a management team is is good at capital allocation?
0: Yeah, so I, I like to see a management team that acts um, strategically and um, opportunistically. So I, I always want that management team putting capital towards its highest and best use. So that could be reinvesting in the business, making an acquisition, um, repurchasing shares. It could be issuing shares if if the stock is if they think the stock is really high. You could raise capital by issuing shares. It works both ways. You just you don't see that too often. But I, I want them making savvy. Capital allocation decisions consistently.
1: Um, let's move on to some some application stuff. Because in October you pitched, uh, you were on with with Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp, and you pitched Meta as a value stock. I think that would. Ca- I, I think you could categorize that that company as a uh, stinky feet stock. A lot of people, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people want to stay away from that. Uh, Meta's done pretty well since then. Uh, has 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 the thesis on has your thesis on Meta changed at all since since October?
0: Uh, my thesis hasn't changed. The stock price has changed. Um, I, it was probably about $130 per share when I mentioned it. I thought there was a, a, a nice, attractive margin of safety there, and then immediately after I pitched it, the stock dropped to like 90. Um, but the business hadn't really, as we as we mentioned before, the, the intrinsic value of the company hadn't really changed that much. It was the stock price that had really fallen off a cliff. So I thought that was an exceptionally attractive opportunity. Um, and sure enough, then the stock has, has more or less doubled from that low. Or as we speak, it's currently about 170. So I think it's still attractively priced, um, but the margin of safety isn't quite what it was. So it definitely was a stinky feet stock um, when I pitched it back in October. Whenever you mentioned Meta to someone, all they would do is mention um, the risk factors, and and there were legitimate risk factors, and there still are. Um, very legitimate risk factors. You know they're they're spending very aggressively on the metaverse with no certain payoff in sight. Um, the iOS tracking changes have impacted their ability to deliver targeted ads. Um, and TikTok at that time was a big concern. Feels like a bit less of a competitive concern now. But like there are still um, very real risk factors. But this is still a world class business with. Uh, it's one of the best. It, it's among the best businesses in the world, if you're being objective about it. Um, with uh, a leader who I consider one of the best executives in the world, and at the time in October, it was trading at just a very, very cheap valuation. Now I think it's 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 still attractively priced, but not as attractively priced as it
1: was. Uh, you mentioned margin of safety there. I want to dig in on that concept. Why, mm-hmm. is, why is finding a margin of safety so so important to you?
0: Yeah, it it goes back to the definition of value investing, right? I want to figure out what I think an asset is worth and then buy it for less than that amount. And that is your margin of safety, the difference between your estimate of intrinsic value and the amount that you're paying for a company. And ideally, you want that margin of safety to be as wide as possible. uh, and that It protects you on your downside in case your investment thesis doesn't pan out
1: the way you expect. uh, And it gives you a little boost to your upside potential if things do go as you expect. And uh, I can imagine, if, if you're listening, there's a chance you may have wrinkled your nose a bit hearing that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the greatest executives in the world. I guess that would be, by definition, a stinky feet stock. And I think that's been um, that's been a concern for for many though, which is that he uh, historically he has bought back shares at extraordinarily high prices, and um, he doesn't have a board to keep him in check to to rein him in on on those capital allocation decisions that would be that are so important to to investors. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you're investing in
0: Facebook, you're betting on Zuck. I mean, the guy's all in, he, all in on the metaverse. Um, he's got this grand vision for what the future of computing is going to look like, and he feels he needs to pivot the company there aggressively um, in order to benefit from that, or even maybe in order to participate in that. Um, I'm not a tech visionary. I don't know, but. He is. He's been very right about a lot of changes. It was not popular when he pivoted the company towards mobile. That was the right decision. It was not popular when he bought Instagram. People laughed. He spent like a billion dollars on Instagram, and everyone laughed. Um, And that's one of it's on the short list of the greatest acquisitions of all time. Like he knows what he's doing. He's completely um, invested in in every sense of the term in the company, and he's exposed to trends and technology and and thinkers that are living years ahead of what we've experienced. So if I had to bet on someone to figure out what the future of technology was
1: going to look like, I would Zuckerberg would be on the again on the short list of candidates. You work on a, a service at the Motley Fool called Value Hunters mm-hmm. and I don't want to necessarily give away a pick, but are there any other value opportunities without Mark Zuckerberg that you want to want to discuss, <laughs> maybe one on your radar?
0: Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'm happy to give away a pick. Um, this so this is a pick in the Value Hunters service. It's called Wesco International, ticker WCC. Um, Wesco is a really well-run distributor. Uh, it helps deliver um, electrical, industrial, and communication products from forty-five thousand suppliers to one hundred forty thousand customers. And I know that's um, it might be hard to visualize what that might look like, but a typical. A typical customer might be um, a data center or an electric utility or a manufacturer. And Wesco provides them with um, all the things they need to run their facilities wire, cable, lighting, electrical equipment, power, safety, security. Uh, it
1: goes on and on. It's um, just tens of thousands of products. I mean, that's a company that many people don't have a lot of touch with. But when you described it, it, it kind of sounds like a, uh... Cintas, but from a more industrial level.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a really good analogy. I think that might help people get more comfortable with it. And I should point out, it's not just about distributing the products. They obviously do that, they're a distributor. But Wesco also provides value-added services to those customers, uh, like warehousing, inventory management, uh, and equipment assembly, where they will, um, they will make all the pieces of equipment that you might need on a construction site, on a job site, and then they will actually lay them out, they will kit them out in the order that the workers need to pick them up and assemble them. So, it saves you labor as a company, it, makes, um, it saves you labor, it makes things more efficient for your operations, and the inventory is being kept off your balance sheet, so it's, it's very attractive. Um, 70% of Wesco's revenue has some sort of service attached, so they're really tightly integrated with their customers.
1: If it's if it's so if it's got a such if it's got such a great business model though, why do you think it's it's trading at such a discount to some of its competitors?
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a head scratcher. I think historically the business was a bit more cyclical. Um, so if we go back a bit, Wesco's always been a really well- run distributor but the the thing that's really attractive here is in 2020 they merged with another equally sized uh, really well- run distributor called Anixter and that basically doubled the size of the business overnight. and This has been a case where one plus one equals three, where the value that has been created from this merger, it just every single quarter, um, they're just producing more and more value, and they make their initial um, estimates at the time of the merger look laughable in retrospect. And what, What's been really successful is Wesco can cross-sell its products and services into Anikster's customer base and vice versa, um, and they're just creating so much value. Um, I mentioned um, it doubled the size of the business. Um, distribution is a business where scale is really important, and this combined entity, they're now the largest player um, in a very fragmented industry, so they get volume purchasing discounts. So Basically, they can buy cheaper and distribute more effectively than competitors. It's, it's really—it's hard to um, determine why a customer would go with someone other than Wesco.
1: Rich Griefner, appreciate your time and your insight. Uh, Learned learn quite a bit about value investing in, in this conversation. Uh, Thank you, Ricky.
0: As always, people on the program may own stocks discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, we'll see you tomorrow.